It's interesting that you brought up Marx. I always like, I thought Marx was like an uncle or something because my father was always talking about Marx, Marx, Marx being religion is the opium of the people, like little lines like that he would drop. This is Max Rameau, strategist, theorist, author, and organizer with Pan-African Community Action. And you are listening to The Next World, a podcast about building movements. Once a month on this show, we will explore and celebrate the work of poor people's movements, particularly in the U.S. We will highlight innovative and powerful organizing campaigns and community building led by women, LGBTQ folks, Black communities, and other people of color that are pushing the boundaries and have the potential to transform this society. In this episode, we have a special two-parter focusing on Haiti and all of the turmoil and organizing that is going on there. Our guest today is Mamira Prosper, who is the International Coordinator for Community Movement Builders out of Atlanta, Georgia, and Assistant Professor of Global and International Studies at University of California, Irvine. Mamira joined us from her home in Haiti, where she lives part-time as well as part-time in the U.S. So, Mamira, thank you for coming and welcome. Thank you for having me, Max. So, let's start with you. Tell us Mm -hmm. a little bit about yourself. You were born in Haiti or just raised there? You're living in the States now, but what's the... Yes, Um, the quick quick, um, bio. I'm born and raised in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince, in the capital. Families from the southeast, Jacmel, and which is considered the cultural capital of the country as far as arts production. And I left Haiti at 15, so 1998. This is under the first term of uh, Wené Prival, who's the successor of Jean-Bertrand Aristide. And, you know, it had to do with several reasons, um, one of which was to obviously increase opportunity by integrating into the U.S. American system so that I could go to college eventually. And I joined my sister and her family. My siblings are almost 20 years my senior. My father was a political prisoner under Duvalier. So he went in under the father, Francois, came out under the son. He was there for about six years and seven months. I'm actually um, learning more about his activities these days because there's been research done by a young scholar who is also the daughter of an ex-prisoner. And more information is coming out about his activities, which, you know, he never wanted to speak on. Um, Part of it um, has to do with wanting to protect me, because I went to school often with children of people who were pro-Juvalier, and he thought it was safer for me not to know. Right. So um, you wouldn't accidentally say something that they would report yes, back to their parents. Pretty much. And, you know, when you're in school in Haiti, the history books end at 1957. Basically, Jivale gets elected and then you don't know what the hell happens anymore. Right. Am I allowed to curse occasionally? <laughs> it depends what the curse is. Yes. <laughs> it depends. OK. Yeah. Um, I will refrain. And so <laughs> you, can, you can let it fly here. <laughs> And yeah, so, you know, this is something we would talk about in class informally, but there was no, there were no books to really guide us through a conversation. A lot of it has to do with the fact that many of these people were still alive, children, grandchildren, and there's a silence on that period. Mm. um, So Marx talks about the end of history being the end of classes being communism. In Haiti, the end of history was the election of... uh, (laughs) Francois Duvalier. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, oh, the book's done. It's like, I have nothing to say for 30 years. And we never had a reconciliation process in Haiti that, you know, even when uh, Jean-Claude Duvalier was returned after 25 years by Michel Martelly, who was um, 
the you know impose president and Haiti right. in 2011. Junko, of course, is baby doc, and he was an ex. Right. He had to flee in the middle of the night in the 80s. Exactly. And then, and, uh, and no one thought he would ever go back. And then suddenly, pretty much, gets elected yeah. into office, and he welcomes Dubai. Exactly. Back. He welcomes him back, and I actually went to his trial. And of course, he never showed. He never got tried until he died. I mean, he came back pretty frail and people were like, oh, but he's frail now. Let's just, you know, forget it. It's like, let's let's not forget it. Yeah. Um, he never showed up to be tried. I thought that was going to be an exciting moment in Haitian history. I was there on the ground. like, Yes, finally, justice. You know, so, we'll you start know, somewhere. I've had parking tickets where they had hearings where you're not allowed <laughs> to show up. But I don't think like crimes against humanity. I didn't realize uh, that was one of those options yes. to show up or not show up. You know, I yes. think this is also an interesting parallel to some of the stuff we're going to talk about with the current president, Moise. Mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. Was, I remember when Duvalier came back. And of course, that's where my family is from as well. I was born there, although I was not raised in Haiti. Mm-hmm. And I remember when Duvalier came back, it was a shocking moment. Yeah. Uh, I just remember my family, uh, uh, you know, standing around the TV with their mouth agape. Uh, just shocked at the at the site, and also, you know, some of the younger ones were like, "This guy's a peepaw. He's someone's granddad, right? Right? He's frail, and they didn't live through. Of course, we didn't. Our generation didn't live through uh, his reign of terror. And mm-hmm. there was some, I guess, in that respect, there was a rehabilitation. It was like, this is could course. be our uncle. This could be exactly. our grandparent. You know, we is this what we want to do to our elderly uncle and, and grandparent? And there was no real reckoning with the. Mm-hmm. person is responsible for uh, many deaths, many tortures, and many violations of, yes. of, of human rights as well as... And, and stealing money and, and, stealing and running away with it, poverty. right? Yeah, 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 right. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I think, you know, to your point, this is what we're seeing in the aftermath of um, Jovenel Moise's assassination, that mm-hmm. he's being rehabilitated as some kind... You know, people are comparing him to Jean-Jacques Dessalines the father of the nation who had a dream to develop Mm -hmm. Haiti um, and everything about his um, actual, what he actually did is being erased, right? Manipulated. Right. Um, And so it's the same, same thing that we saw when Juvalier came back. So let's, let's talk about that in a second, but back to you. So your, your father was a political prisoner and uh, you were raised with some aura of secrecy around that. And also some sense that, you know, your family life could be disrupted because of the... Right. So, well, I mean, it's interesting to say that you, you brought up Marx. I always like, I thought Marx was like an uncle or something. Because my father was always talking about Marx, Marx, Marx. Religion <laughs> is the opium of the people. Like little lines like that he would drop. <laughs> I mean, I was 11, right? You don't, you don't really know what he's talking about. But there was always a sense of, I have, we all have a role to play mm-hmm. um, in ensuring you know, justice. And so I grew up with that, um, yeah. even though it's also important to say that in know. Haiti, people were very familiar with and talking, uh, maybe not openly uh, in some cases, but we're talking about and studying uh, radical political theory of Marx yes. in particular. Yes, so absolutely. This is not just a place where people are, are just struggling to survive. Absolutely. And, uh, yes. Uh, thinking about how can I, you know, making demands that are only around the next meal. Right. There are, there, are, there are organizers who are thinking about what is an alternative way of, of organizing the economy, of organizing the social structure uh, and working towards that and sometimes paying a serious price for it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that my father says, you know, he didn't necessarily go in as a communist. He definitely went into prison as someone who was fighting dictatorship because at that time, it's not sort of the, 
the, the, the dictatorship today that looks like democracy, right, where you're allowed to have freedom of press, even though you get shot afterwards for it, right? But you got to say what you got to say. There were no unions allowed to exist. Community-based organizations were heavily policed, right? So he's growing up, or he's young at that time. He has very young children. And so he's fighting a dictatorship. But he's always described his radicalization taking place while he's in prison when he's wow. meeting people who are diehard Marxists. And this is part of his awakening to other elements that maybe he, he felt he had ignored. So he comes from very humble mm-hmm. um, beginnings himself and had always considered the class question very seriously. I, I think he, you know, at least from what he said, that this is the period that radicalized him the right. most. And this would have been the 1970s or so. Where Science 71 to 76. Yeah, 78 to 76. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So when he, when he went into prison and then ultimately uh, uh, came out. So yeah. your uh, father uh, goes to prison. He is a political prisoner. It has some impact on your home life. Yes. Uh, it must have been very difficult on your mother. Yes. So obviously you you then growing up make a decision not to go anywhere near politics, certainly not the politics of Haiti. <laughs> well, yes, my mother, you know, became a single parent. She was fired from her job. Their bank accounts were seized. So she had to move in with some of her relatives. And at some point, my father's relatives, there's tensions in the family, of course, because people who had the last name Prosper. Because my father and two of his cousins also had been in prison. So right, some of the family was like, okay, we have to distance ourselves from these three mm-hmm. so they don't start picking us off, right? right. So essentially, uh, eventually she, she tried to hang on and eventually they, she, she went into exile in New York, Brooklyn. So my siblings then left Haiti. They were very young and they moved to New York. And my father came out actually on December 24th, 1976. So, you know, my father was an atheist, but Christmas was always a very somber day for us in my house because it was, it was a sad day, but it was a happy one too. Mm. This is the day he came out of prison. Mm -hmm. And I recently saw the announcement from a newspaper clip that someone shared with me with his name as a list of prisoners who were freed that day. So, you know, all the stories now are really... Oh, like, wow, this is real. I, I mean, obviously, I believed he was in prison, but, you know, seeing his name written right. had an impact. So this is part of, you know, my, you know, I think a lot of Haitian people's stories, right? Mm-hmm. How we become split families and there's a group yeah. of us who end up, a portion right. of us who end up living elsewhere and then folks who stay in Haiti. So my mother had traveled. She was working in the factory somewhere in Brooklyn and she gets this call and, he, you know, has been freed, but he has no family, really, rejecting the family that didn't choose to stand up to the dictatorship. And so she returns to Haiti, and I'm born almost seven years later. So I know nothing of the actual experience of living under that dictatorship. Right. Yeah. But you didn't know about the experience of living under the dictatorship. But obviously, if your father was talking about Marx and you knew the stories, at least somewhat growing up, even if you didn't right. know the details, it's yes. something that's, that that went along with you. In school, the, the books end at 1957. We did have informal conversations about the Juvalier. And I remember a specific conversation. I'm 11 years old and people are, you know, the, I went to a Catholic school. So the nun who's running the class that day was brave enough to bring up the conversation Um, you know, is asking us what we think, what we know. And I say, you know, this is somebody who tortured, murdered 
tens of thousands of people. And then someone else, clearly the daughter of a, a Juvali supporter, mm-hmm. says, but he built roads, right? Um, and so just this idea that development is reduced to building roads that lead to whatever site of extraction to a port right, is considered a sign of development, but, you know, disappearing 30,000 people, you know, that's just a consequence of development. It's just development. a price to pay for, for right. advancement. Exactly. For joining so, civilization, yeah. Right. And yeah. so, and, you know, Duvalier is known for saying in 1969 that he wants to make Haiti the Taiwan of the Caribbean, right? Mm-hmm. They, what they're thinking about in the 60s, and you know, this is really the beginning of the neoliberal turn in Haiti, is to turn Haiti into right, several industrial parks. So if you go back in time, you'll see that the first decrees that are being taken, or there are several decrees that are being taken in the late 60s, early 70s, to create industrial parks, to produce garments for you know, us in the global north, right? And that's still the logic of this particular party is to take perfectly good agricultural lands that should be producing food for local consumption and turn them into, if not plantations, you know, monocultural crops towards export, but also garment parks to produce clothes for Gap, Old Navy, Zara, etc. And that's continuing the logic of the Juvenile. Yeah. And continues on today. This is a yes. it continues to be a major uh, producer or assembler. I think is what they call it, assembly mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm, of, for mm-hmm. the Gap and Levi's and several. Exactly. Other things. Yeah, assembly. I want to make a you know observation here. I've asked you several times about your own upbringing and your childhood, yes, yes. and you continue to switch <laughs> back to Haiti. So I wonder if you, maybe we should have a bring in a therapist. Uh, uh, yes. Um, no. 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 It's, your it's, of, uh, I, 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 I will stay on topic. About no, no, I, I just think it's interesting <laughs> that you find your own story intertwined well with, with yes, ladies yes, and you're yes. making these reference points uh, uh, here, but it, just to, to, to wrap up. So you, you then after moving back to Haiti, you then move back to the States to go to high school or to go to college. Yeah. So I leave at 15. So I go to New Jersey, Mendham, New Jersey, which is white upper class, neighborhood so extreme extreme i mean i was already you know a privileged person in haiti i grew up middle class went to one of the best private schools all girls you know catholic private school so there's a continuity in terms of recognizing and you know comfort etc but obviously the u.s has a whole nother version of what privilege means so i joined my sister and her husband you know and they're you know, black excellence type of people, right? Ascending right. to upper middle class status. And I've, I spent three years there. At that point, I think, and it's going to be ironic, I think this is when my Pan-African consciousness is starting to emerge more clearly mm-hmm. because I get asked every question about every type of black person on this planet, right? I'm supposed to know about Nigerians. I'm supposed to know about you know, Colombians, I'm supposed to defend Haitians. And of course, I'm like, I got to read up on these people, you know, I got to know what's going on. Like, because these white people are outrageous with what they're saying about, you know, my people at large. So, you know, that's, uh, that provokes me into a different kind of, you know, from being, from going to, from being Haitian to African, right? You you Um, embrace that. You didn't run away from it. You didn't say, these aren't me. No, I was just, no, I embraced it. And it was a challenge for me to, you know, to expand 
my knowledge of the African world. I, mean, I think my father always had a, you know, a Pan-African perspective, but it didn't necessarily mean that he knew about basic African history or even what had happened in the U.S., right? It was just sort of a discourse. So I had to fill in the blank with, you know, a little more knowledge. Right. And then you went to, to college. Um, yes. And in Northeast. I went to college, Barnard College in New York City, all women's college by choice. I think, you know, I had, I saw the benefits of being in all women's space. I didn't mention this part of what my father experiences and his radicalization in prison. I was also deep thinking about some gender stuff, right? Because he yeah. comes out and he's like Mr. Feminist, right? And he's raising me with that perspective. Because I, I remember, you know, getting pushback from Haitian friends. Oh, you went to the States and you became this feminist. And I was like, actually, like, I was already this way at 11. Because my father was always saying, this is, you know, the future is woman. He's like, men have had, you know, millennia to try out things. And he's like, they just fuck it up. Wow. Well, that, that is, that's really interesting that, that he was radicalized on the feminist side in mm-hmm. prison, where usually, stereotypically, it's thought of that the opposite happens. Is even if you become radicalized politically, it becomes ultra-nationalist and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in another direction. Yeah. And I, I remember him saying, you know, even... I'm very young. I'm six and seven. And he's teaching me how to shake somebody's hand. And he's like, you got to shake it hard and you got to look them in the eye. So they know someone, a person is standing in front of them. He's like, you got to learn to drink your liquor. He's like, because wherever men gather, they will be supposed to teach children not to their 10. Let me just say. So they're 10, right? Not six. Yeah. And so he's like, you have to learn how to drink because, you know, wherever men gather, they will drink and, you know, they won't want you in the space and you have to force yourself into the space. You know, things like that, that um, I remember very vividly today. And I'm like, wow, that he was imprinting this very early on. Yeah. So I went to an all women's college, Barnard in New York Uh City for four years. And actually he died my senior year Mm -hmm. after he had finally agreed to allow me to record him and all his stories that he had been holding back. And he dies a month before we have this big date you know, so I never got the stories. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very excited about this, this colleague who's doing, doing the research. So at least, you know, through what about she's a series been, of political prisoners. Yeah. She's been looking at, you know, different archives that some prisoners have kept and even looking at some government documents. She's interviewed hundreds of people who who are survivors. And she's also told me some of the people I need to go look up if I want to, if I want to know my father's particular story. Yeah. Yeah. So at least, you know, at least that. Yeah. 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 So you may be doing some research in that area. Yes. Yes. So speaking of research, you are now a professor. Yes. Where were you to begin with? Okay. That's a long, I've been, I've been out of, like I say, PhD school since 2015. So this mm-hmm. is my first uh, tenure track position, but I've been at University I've, of California, Irvine. Yes. I haven't even moved there yet. I'm in transit. But before that, I was in Africana Studies Department at Davidson College, which is in North Carolina. Before that, I was doing a postdoc um, at the Graduate Center at City University of New York. And I was embedded in two different centers to the Institute for uh, Research on the African Diaspora and the Americas and the Caribbean, but also with the Center for Place, Culture and Politics. So with folks like Ruthie Wilson Gilmore and David Harvey, 
So, um, you know, we could talk a little bit more about that in terms of how my research gets much more deeply political, because I'm an anthropologist. Studying culture means you have to study politics to understand right, what, why people do what they do, or, yeah. you know, and, and that there's a dialectical relationship, right, between the two. And actually, I started my research, or I decided to focus my research on Haiti after the earthquake in 2010. At that point, I was in the... A PhD program, and it was sociology and anthropology at Florida and in the International University, your alma mater, uh, Max, and yes. I was an organizer with Take Back the Land. Which is where Take you Back and I met. Yes. Now we're getting and, to the now we're getting to the <laughs> highlight of your entire. It's exactly like the yes, whole yeah. reason for the show. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, just to to connect the stories. My father died senior year. I graduate and I'm sort of lost. And I and I'm like I'm gonna go back home to Haiti. And instead, for many personal reasons, I end up in Miami. But I was always like. I hate Miami. It seems like a shallow place. Like nothing's happening there. And I, I got this job as like a youth coordinator for some little nonprofit thing. And I remember for Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I'm on a bus with the students. I brought them to the march and I'm passing down, you know, Northwest 62nd Street. And I see this sign, take back the land. And I'm like, I don't know what that is, but like, I like it, you know, like, I was just like, they're taking back the land. And in my mind, you know, there, there is a garden, right? They're growing food. Cause I'm like, this is a food desert. This place has you know no real food. And so this is what I first, I think of what it is. Right. Mm-hmm. And I had been doing this master's in conflict analysis and resolution that your, your mother-in-law too was doing. And, and I was Mar- brought Dr. in to, Margaret Armand. Yes. And yes. I was doing, um, this uh, research project that was talking about Haitian American identity. And then you, Max, are one of the people that they interviewed. And you're talking about yourself as a Haitian American. And then so one of the researchers says, you don't know Max Rameau? And I was just like, no. This was, before, then, this was before we this met. This was before we met. Like, you don't know this story? I've never heard the story. I've never heard the story. So I see the yes. sign, take back to land. So I'm, I'm, this... I'm learning as much from this podcast <laughs> as everyone listening. So I get, I'm on this research. They mention you, or I'm hearing the interview, and then they say, you don't know Max Romo. I was like, I don't know. They're like, take back to land. And I'm like, that sounds familiar. So, of course, I Google it, and then I find some information, and I email you, Max, if you remember. And uh-huh. I'm like, hi, I'm in your classroom. And yeah. then, you know, you respond. You're like, what's your political you know, ideology, whatever question you ask. And I'm like, oh, okay. That I, was terrible. Like, <laughs> I was like, I'm a womanist, a Marxist, you know, the labeling <laughs> that you present. And then you invited me to presentation you were having. I forget where we were, but it was like downtown Miami. And then, you know, I showed up because I had been at some work thing with like, you know, some, I don't know, button down shirt. I even had like, you know, heels on. This is when I was still doing that whole feminine thing. And then we go to the village, right, Umoja Village at Liberty City. And there's, you know, I'm going to pronounce, this is when my Haitian accents and cut, the mulch, right, is all over the I can barely walk in it. And I was like, all right, I am not dressed for this event here. Um, and I'm amazed, right? I'm looking at a shanty town in the middle of Miami, United States of America, right? And so I pretty much at that point was trying to unionize within my nonprofit we get locked out. I'm jobless. And then Max is like, we have lots of work to do. And I was just like, sign me up. And I remember getting rid of all of my shoes, 
I was like, I don't need these things anymore. You know, my whole life is changing. I cannot believe I've never heard this before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I remember, you know, just always being frustrated talking about inequality in the States, inequality in Haiti. And one of my sisters like, you're just always talking about it. Like, when are you going to do something about it? Right. And, and so this take back the land moment is just the perfect moment. I was just like, this is it. My whole yeah, life and, became take back the land. And, and that also brought you full circle back to the political organizing that your father was doing. Yes. Uh, yes. So, yes. Yeah. And, I, right. and, and when the earthquake happens, I'm in graduate school at FIU thinking about doing maybe what they call an auto ethnography. So it's when you, you center the story around yourself, but it's a way to get into the politics, right? Sort of mm-hmm. what you kept saying I was doing. I'm talking mm-hmm. about myself, but I go back to, you know, what's happening in the country. And the earthquake happens. And I remember you, Max, were one of the first people who's like, oh, you know, if you're going to go connect to Haiti, you know, don't connect to these crazy NGOs. You should connect to some of these groups that um, your partner, Bernadette, was connected to. So in this case, the Haitian Platform for Advocacy for an Alternative Development. And so immediately I contact them and I begin a relationship with PAPTA. And that's my entry to Haitian political life because you know I was 15 when I left you know Haiti for Mm -hmm. me was a place I would come to visit family and friends so this you know take back the land is a very important period of my life right I'm not saying just that just because you're here Max you know (laughs) but just in terms of putting to action some of the idea to be fair you you changed take back the land as well so it wasn't it was not a one-way relationship oh that's sweet I was great. saying that to be yes. <laughs> so all these things are connected, right? Like take the take back the land experience and work with the groups in Haiti. So there's this continuity really in, in the work. And in 2010, I become way more involved with Haitian social movements up yeah. until today. Mm-hmm. So that that's amazing, an amazing story. But can, can, let's shift now a little bit, shift gears sure. a little bit, although I don't think it's that big of a shift, at least in my mind, to what what uh, happened recently in Haiti with the assassination mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the uh, sitting president, although, you know, there's some reasons to think. So let's do a quick chronology here of the time. So I want to spend a little time on on what happened here with the, with the Haitian president, Jovenel Moïse. Uh, so in October 2015, there was an election in Haiti uh, to... Uh, to elect the president, and the mm-hmm. election was was completely marred by fraud. So yeah. much so that the following year, the results of the election were thrown out. But mm-hmm. the election happened in, in October 2015, and then by just like in the United States, the elections are in November, and then the president is seated in January. Uh, in Haiti, the elections were in October, and the president was supposed to be seated in February of 2016. Mm-hmm. So the term. The constitutional term actually began in twenty six in February twenty sixteen, but no one was was seated at that point because of the fraud that happened in in October, uh, and so the actual election that would hold that would be a legitimate election did not occur until November twenty sixteen, and that one Moise uh, won. Uh, there was certainly less fraud. I won't say there was no fraud, but there was less fraud uh, there. And in February twenty seventeen. Moise was uh, installed as president. So by most people's counting, the, the term of that presidency actually began in February 2016, which meant February 2021 was the end of the five-year term of president. Mm-hmm. And yet uh, Moise was assassinated in July of 2021, and he was still 
in the place of uh, a president. So he had overstayed his constitutional term by most people's countings, although by the people who seem like they're able to make the decisions, the United <laughs> States, Canada, the United Nations, uh, he was still uh, recognized as president. So let's talk a little bit about just the run-up to the assassination. It seems to me that Moise was wildly unpopular 2021, in the mm-hmm. first half of 2021, where he had uh, opposition from, uh, of course, the the masses, who because he was not putting together programs that would alleviate poverty. Uh, and he also had uh, opposition from, from business leaders on all sides and middle class uh, people from, from all sides. So can we talk a little bit about how in, in let's say, early to mid-2021, what Moise was like Uh, and what his popularity was like inside of Haiti. Mm -hmm. If I could just go back to the timeline that you drew for us about the elections. Mm -hmm. In October 2015, there's this election with very low voter turnout, um, estimated at 26%. I have this timeline in front of me. I've worked on it. So no candidate receives a majority of votes, right? And so, and there's also because of international observers, local observers are all saying, there's been a lot of fraud. There were already all kinds of, you know, incidents of violence and intimidation, etc. Right? People reject it. Of course, people tend to reduce the rejection to the political opposition, right? But the people who show up on the streets are showing up because they want their voices to be counted, right? They're not being manipulated by politicians who often people are like, oh, they're being paid as if they are themselves not able to see that they're experiencing hardship, right? And that they should have something to demand. So what happens is because there's this major rejection of the elections, the OAS, the core group, and Michel Martelly actually single-handedly decide to pick Jocelyn Priver, and it doesn't matter, you know, who he is, right? But it doesn't even actually follow what the constitution prescribes in the, in the absence of a sitting president, right? There's supposed to be someone that you pick from the Senate. But instead, you know, they pick someone else that is a compromised candidate and that there's an interim government that holds the space for a year in the interest of organizing new elections. And these new elections that happens right after a major hurricane when folks were like, you know, we can't really hold elections to be fair because even in the Department of South, like 71 percent of the voting centers were unstable. So how are you having free and fair elections when they're actual voting centers that don't exist? Right. So that means people can't register their votes. And even with all of that, you're going to see that 40 percent of the votes came to be untraceable, what people called eventually the zombie votes. So literally there were votes being cast by dead people. Right. And maybe this is maybe this is the fraud Donald Trump's been talking about. Perhaps. Yes. And so this is, you know, very significant because now you're going to see and then the numbers that increase supposedly that would make Jovenel, who had been in third place in this first election that were rejected. He's overwhelmingly number one. And the votes have come. the, The increase of votes came out specifically from the. Port-au-Prince metropolitan area, mm-hmm. which we will find out later, are heavily controlled by gangs, right? And the and the exit polls at this time are are even though Moise wins in the count, the exit polls are stating that Moise got something like six percent of the vote. So this was like it's not even like he had forty five percent, and they just wanted to put him over the fifty percent, right? So he doesn't have to go to the to the runoff. He went from six percent to over fifty percent, yes, at least yes. to go to the exit poll. Yes, so, and yes. and so. People are already clear, right, that he was rejected. The elections were rejected in 2015. 
people are rejecting also the 2016 outcome. And, you know, I think what you said was clear about why people think that, you know, in order to continue to keep the, the calendar going and being on time, that whoever would have won the 2015 would have to cede power in 2021, right? That was the argument by the opposition that the people echoed, right? But as soon as he gets in power, because people already know that he's just there, or at least they hope, they think, he's just there as a puppet to replace Michel Martelly, because the constitution says no president can have two consecutive terms. So people essentially understand Jovenel Moïse as a placeholder. And you can see that even during his campaign, how much Matéli is the one at the forefront and asking him to come up and, you know, speak. And you can, you know, Moïse seems like a very shy person at the time, right? Which is a very big contrast to when by August 2020, he's saying, after God, there is no one more powerful than him in Haiti. He's not the same person at all, right? So yeah. there, he definitely grows brave, I would say. And maybe I shouldn't use the word brave to qualify him, right? But bold, let's say. Yeah. And and from the beginning, he's he's being blocked, right? By the opposition and by the, you know, the people in Haiti. And especially in terms of folks Because they being, don't think he's legitimate. They're not blocking him. They don't think he's legitimate. Bizarre um, political right. partisanship. It's actually because they don't think he's legitimate. They don't think he's legitimate. They know he's not legitimate. Even the... His claims of, you know, much like Trump, right, he's an outsider politically and he's a business person who's successful and that's what qualifies him to run the country. But the business he's claiming as, you know, the experience that he has is one that started just a few years before when the same party, Michel Matéli, who's in power, essentially gives him land in the north of the country to set up a banana plantation and also gives tens of millions of dollars from the state to subsidize this plantation. And, and what we will see eventually when the Court of Audits is able to produce a report, an investigative report on the way that the Pito Caribe funds were used, and we can get into what the Pito Caribe is, Moise will appear sometimes as an agronomist, sometimes as an engineer, in order to justify more monies coming to him. So people are aware that he's a fraud. Right. Not only because they stole the elections, but also because even how he presents himself is fake. Right. He's yeah. not who he says he is. Yeah. That was part one of our conversation with Mamira Prosper. We'll be back with part two next week. Thank you for listening to The Next World. I'm Max Rameau. You can find out more about my work at pacapower.org. That's P-A-C-A-Power.org. You can read more about the sponsors of this show on the Partners for Dignity and Rights website, dignityandrights.org. Until then, please tell your friends about us and help us spread the word about this podcast. Goodbye for now. And remember, organize, organize, organize.